Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Bounded Context. I'm your host, Ryan Schraber. With me today is Matthias Barras, um, Principal Consultant in ArtLink. Um, sorry for the Dutch uh, pronunciation there, but welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, so, so Matthias, why don't you tell us, our listeners a bit about yourself and some of the problems that you help clients solve? Uh, yeah, well, so uh, I've been a consultant for uh, a long time now. Um, Artling is a new company where uh, we're, we're grouping together with a bunch of people, um, and uh, we help we help uh, technical leaders, CTOs, uh, as well as the teams um, at the level of software uh, design strategy, as well as um, the DDD side of things, right? So strategic design, domain modeling, uh, that's the core of our expertise. And then, of course, that touches into architecture, organizational structure, uh, product, uh, all these kind of things. And that's, uh, that's basically the main thing, what we do. And uh, I also organize Domain Driven Design Europe, uh, the conference, as a, well, a side thing that uh, grew big, uh, I suppose. <laughs> and so when we're talking, your background in architecture took a different, a little bit different um, sort of path. You came from a music background, right? Yeah, I, uh, I went to music college in, uh, in Ghent, uh, and um, I was mostly doing uh, music for films, for short films, documentaries, um, commercials. Well, those made the money, but the rest was fun. <laughs> uh, that sort of thing, as well as some pop music and, uh, and some random things, really. I, I even uh, conducted a pop choir for a few years, which was uh, oh, wow. fun as well. So, so, so your background in DDD, you know, that's, it's a, obviously I borrowed the name of this podcast um, from one of the terms and, I was, and I've been reading um, lately, a lot of your um, work and, you know, some of the topics that you hit on um, is this concept of, you know, we talk about domains and domain driven design. And then there's this term like bounded context. One of the things I was picking up in your latest article was just how about how domains live in the problem space and bounded context live in sort of the solution space. And it's up to the designer about where to yeah. draw the boundaries. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, it's definitely, it's it's the designer's choice, ultimately. Of course, there's many constraints and things that impact design, which is always uh, the case. It's one of the chief innovations of, of domain-driven design. Of course, we've been talking about um, modularization of systems and components and all these things for, for a very long time. Uh, you know, David Parnas, uh, the, the decomposition of systems, uh, 1970. Two, I think, is a paper. Um, you know, and we've always talked about this, and and with microservices, this these ideas are are, are taking uh, or have been taking a, a huge uh, drive in in, in interest. Um, but we've always been talking about the technical separation of of systems, right? How to separate them and how to you know units of deployment, repositories, code bases, right? All these sort of well, physical in as much as you can talk about physical in the software space, but there's physical separations, uh, technical separations, and 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 the messaging between them and the APIs, etc. But domain-driven design has 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 taken this other view, which is sort of lifting the domain model as the the first class uh, aspect of a system. Right? It's it's no longer a system with some logic in it, but it's the the logic, the 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 domain model as the as a central thing. Uh, preferably implemented as a standalone, um, you know, using using plain old Java objects or whatever your language is. And then surrounding that, there's the technical infrastructure that makes it work that you need, of course, for, to do all the communication and persistence and all these things. Um, but so we're, we're lifting this domain model and, and the language that uh, that it's using as the as first class thing, and then um, once you do that, you can start reasoning about these models 
in isolation and how they relate to each other. And that's sort of where the novelty of domain-driven design steps in. Uh, if you um, And I haven't found anywhere else where they do this, where they say, well, the model is this first class with its language, and now we're going to reason about how one model talks to another, how much one model needs to understand about this other model in order to do its work. Right, So it's not just coupling in the sense of it's calling something there or it's using something from there, but it's how much does it actually know about this other thing or how much, of course, as a, as a developer, as a software designer, do you need to know uh, when I'm working in this model, how much do I need to know about this other model? Right? And how do they communicate? And what language are we sharing? What language are we hiding from each other? Um, you know, how, do we, how do we manage all that? Um, I, I think that's the chief innovation of, of domain-driven design. Uh, I've been, um, you know, if you read uh, William McKent's Data and Reality, um, it, it's, it's not in there. It's, it's the, you know, one of those seminal books about, um, you know, modeling and software. And he gets very close, but he doesn't get to this point of let's lift that out and, and see the model as uh, not, not just the model, but a bunch of models that interact yeah. and communicate. Uh, of course, software back then was um, well simpler compared to now. Um, more, uh, you know, smaller, more monolithic systems uh, constrained by the technology uh, that existed. Um, but so, yeah, I, I think that's the, the 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 opportunity now that we get from this is, you know, there's there's domains. Domains are I call it problem space, right? It's the world of the of the business. It's the world of the customer. It's how the business sees itself. It's how it sees. Uh, their their main activities, um, and then all the supporting activities that they need to do, like invoicing and you know all these things. Um, and then, of course, we want to look at that. That's the domain-driven aspect, right? We want to understand them. We want to reflect that in our systems, in our models. Um, we want to follow sort of the contours of the business uh, where relevant. But at the same time, these these boundaries that maybe exist in the organization. Um, their historic boundaries, they grew because of uh, how, you know, human systems worked back then, how paper-based systems work. Um, the, these, these departments and whatever, they weren't designed to solve software problems. We're dealing with a new uh, reality. We're not just mimicking physics. It's a, it's a new sort of, I don't know what to call it, non-physical world where we get to uh, define many of many of the of the rules there. So we're sort of when when we're modeling, we have as designer, we get to choose how to reorganize that uh, to some degree. So there is you know the domain driven, but it's not domain mimicking uh, design yeah. in that sense. And so bounded contexts are this tool, right? We can say, well, here is a bit of this world of this domain that we understand that we can sort of isolate. We'll make a model that represents this. We'll build the, the, the infrastructure around it. Um, but we get to choose these boundaries. Uh, we get to look at how it works in the domain. We get to look at the language, but we can look at other aspects as well. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, the opportunity that, that we've been given here. Um, so you can look at you know, understandability, right? Um, for, for a new engineer to join a, a, a new project or, or an existing project or company, there's a very long um, time that you take to, to gain enough of the domain knowledge and become really productive there, right? So if you can choose your boundaries of your domain model, 
in terms of what is easy enough to sort of understand as a, you know, what, what can you keep in your head at the same time? Can I understand yeah. this model as a whole um, where I know I understand everything, right? And all the concepts are, are consistent. Um, everything that is there is there for a reason. Um, everything that doesn't have to be there is simply not in there, but is elsewhere. Um, I know how to communicate with, with other contexts. Um, the rules are, are straightforward. The languages, there's no ambiguity in the language, right? Every term has a single meaning. Uh, once you get that, it, it buys you um, not just for new people to learn this domain really quickly or this, this model for the domain, but it buys you flexibility. It buys you um, the ability to move fast and change things in isolation without affecting everything else. And that's sort of the dream of microservices, but microservices are solving it at the technical level. Of course, people are talking about this stuff, about, about yeah. contexts and, and boundaries and language. Um, but then these are sort of the core ideas in, in, in domain-driven design that uh, I think we need to look at more. Well, I think, you know, it's you seen like, there's a race away from monoliths, right? Monoliths are bad, microservices good, but how you organize those is still a lot of times up, up for debate. And I think that found the context is, is a way to look at that. I've heard understandability, right? I've heard constraints and, and the principles of sort of, you know, um, low coupling, high cohesion and low coupling um, are also carried over um, with thinking about how you lay out these um, bound the context. What are some of the, as a systems designer, what are some of the other things maybe apart from those that go in, that you work with to figure out like, how do you draw the lines? Like what are those things that you consider or factors into how you draw the lines about the context? Yeah. Um, well, understandability is one. Uh, I think it's one uh, that, that, that matters, right? Um, but uh, there's, there's a bunch of heuristics that I would use to figure out when I'm working with clients to figure out what these boundaries should be. Um, you can look at, at, at communication, right? The, the, the chattiness between these things. If you, you know, draw a circle and you say, well, this is billing and this is invoicing, but there's a, a crazy amount of information messages going back and forth uh, between these two boundaries, then maybe something is wrong there, right? They need to know too much about each other to do their work. So maybe this boundary should have been one thing, or maybe it's the other way around, right? That um, some, some concepts are in one boundary, in one domain model, um, but they don't really touch on each other very much. Maybe it's only once, you know, at the end of a process, uh, to kick off another process. Well, maybe these two processes could have been separated, right? They, they have no reason to be together if they're hardly talking to each other, right? So looking at, you know, the chattiness, the, the, the language. Um, so if one, uh, even at the level of microservices, right? This is, this is where it, go, it gets wrong. You can make something technically very small, but if this small service has a concept, right? Let's say product or, or I don't know, a bill or any, any domain concept. And there's another microservice that also owns some of this concept. And then another one that needs to query these two microservices to get information to do work. Well, clearly they all share the same language. They, they are part of the same underlying conceptual model. Even if it's not just a, a code model, right? But it's a, a code model spread across different services. So they're really one bounded context now. Um, even though they're, they're technically separate. So, you know, you, you need to look at that language and see how much they share, how much they need to know about each other. Um, and then there's, 
you know, there, there, there's things that, you know, you mentioned cohesion and, and, and coupling. Um, sometimes we're so focused on decoupling that we forget the cohesion, of course. It's, uh, uh, or things like, like dry, right? Uh, don't repeat yourself. Um, the real world doesn't work that way, right? If, if you think about how many databases is your name in, I, I don't actually want to know the answer. It's probably a huge amount. But the world isn't dry, even within a company. Processes aren't dry maybe within a single sort of subset or, or, or part of a process. But the moment you send somebody an invoice or a bill, that's a copy, right? And, and that, or even, even inside your company, right? Maybe uh, you place an order with me and um, you know, I'm, the, I'm the account manager. Uh, I take down the order and you say, okay, let's, uh, let's do this. Maybe you want to order, I don't know, a thousand pairs of shoes. Uh, and I, I then tell shipping, well, what I will give them is a copy of this order and they will start their own process, right? Um, in the paper world, that's how we did it. It's a, really a, a paper copy. You would have a copy. I would have a copy. Shipping department would have a copy. When they load everything on the truck, they will have a receipt that the truck driver takes with them. That's a copy. They arrive at your, um, you know, at, at your warehouse. It's, it's copies everywhere. Um, and so... If you're trying to make all of that dry, you're just massively coupling everything, whereas there's there's no real need. The only point in time where we need each other's information is at the transfer points, right? So the moment that I tell shipping, okay, this order is finalized, you can you can uh, you know order pick it and and ship it now. Um, I'm typically not involved in the details anymore. They're not in the details of how the order was made and i'm not involved in the details of how the order was shipped so that's a that's a clear sign for me that this you know these 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 parts of the process want to be separate right or they they can be separate um so that's that's an important heuristic right what's the actual process instead of looking at the data look at the behavior look at you know during this process i need this information and this detail etc at the end of the process, there's a summary of that information, the order, the order form, right, the, the, the piece of paper. Uh, if I send that over, they can do their work without me. So we can separate these things as uh, as bounded context, and that could be implemented as ten microservices on one end and ten yeah. on the other. But these microservices together form uh, form a boundary. And I think, you know, also within the boundaries, like, you know, language, you know, the whole you know, ubiquitous language, the same term means different things, even across a single organization based on yeah. sort of the, the context it's in. Right. And so I think that's another one where I've seen, you know, when we started sort of reading the Eric Evans stuff and, and early DDD, we applied it at a single application, or at least I did. We applied it at a main model level. And I think to me, that's one of the most interesting things in the last few years I've seen is how now domain-driven design is about how, how all the systems, I mean, this is a really big challenging problem that was much bigger than a specific application and a specific domain model. How, how do you see that that evolution has, has been Observe it by me, although I haven't been as plugged into the community as you are. I mean, do you see that sort of evolution? And what are the other sort of evolutions that you think that we've made over the really? Because the, the, Eric's work, and I know it predates that further, but it's been around for almost 20 years. And so it's not like it's brand new. What are some of the evolutions that you've seen in sort of the domain-driven yeah. space over the time? Well, one thing that I think is interesting, that uh, it's not just that um, people early on uh, we all did it, right? We were looking at the at sort of the first half of the book, uh, tactical patterns, code, etc. Um, and then as that sort of got hold, we started 
you know, the community as a whole started looking at bounded context. And, and there's still more in the book that the community hasn't really explored yet, like knowledge levels and responsibility layers, uh, ideas that are also, well, some of them predate uh, domain-driven design. Responsibility-driven design is, is uh, uh, Rebecca Wurzbrock. Um, but so knowledge levels and, and sort of the level where clusters of bounded context, uh, we can start reasoning about these things. Um, th that That's still very much unexplored, I think. But the interesting thing is that it's not just going from tactical to strategic to this higher big picture, um, you know, uh, systems of systems kind of thinking, but that along the way, some of the old stuff gets dismissed as, oh, but that's not important, right? People are now saying domain-driven design is strategic design. Well, that's not really true. It, it's also, you know, it, it's it's a sort of holistic design. Uh, I call it the discipline, right? A set of principles over the whole thing from, from what it looks like at the code level, language patterns, um, an isolated model to to... You know the higher levels of how do these models uh, communicate with each other, to how how do we even make sense of um, you know a, 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 a Fortune 500 company with with hundreds or thousands of of systems in production. Uh, I think that discussion is is not has not happened yet at uh, at least I mean it's happening everywhere of course but never not yet at sort of the the collective consciousness of uh, of the community. And, and let me ask you, so most companies that, that, that you work with, presumably I work with, there's lots of legacy things that are around. They've been built up over time. And on one hand, it can be very daunting. Even if you buy into all this sort of stuff, it can be very daunting. Like, where do you start and, and how do you sort of make progress? How do you advise as you get into there? And let's say that we got legacy technology. We got some monoliths. We got some new microservices. You know, how do you pick out sort of an area and then try these ideas out and then maybe yeah. set something so that others can follow. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, it's hard to say in in, in general terms, of course, because every situation is, uh, is is different. And there's patterns like you know, uh, you know at the level of of of, of services, uh, strangler fake, etc. But um, yeah, the, the the interesting is sort of managing the expectations of what we can actually do and how how long it will take. Right? There's always people who you know feel like we should just burn it all down and rebuild it from scratch. Um, but you're losing a lot of embedded knowledge that, that is in these systems, right? It's often not very understandable anymore because the, the original people have long left. There's no documentation or the documentation is outdated. Um, you know, there's, there's ambiguity. There's, there's, there's all these problems. Um, but it does have, you know, information embedded in it. So we can't just get rid of them. Um, we can't just replace them in, in, in big stretches. If we try to replace some of it, right? And this is, of course, what people are doing, which you know we have to do, and it's important work, uh, is finding areas that we can replace and replace them. But if we always pick the most, um, the, the, the lowest hanging fruits, right? The easiest parts to replace, what will happen is in the end, you end up with uh, only unreplaceable components, Yes. Right. If you keep replacing the replaceable ones, you end up with only unreplaceable ones. Uh, so I don't think that's that's the way forward uh, in general. The the you know the, the the hardest systems to the most coupled systems, those are the ones that that stay in place. Um, and we're still in very much the stone age, I think, of how we do that. We mm -hmm. don't have 
a good language of reasoning about that and talking about that. We don't have uh, sort of these large scale patterns that actually work. We don't know how to build software that will last 100 years. I mean, we know it will stick around for 100 years, but it's not yeah. uh, going to be maintainable for 100 years. Uh, those are very short time spans. Of course, because it hasn't been around that long. Uh, the way we learned, um, well, people have this idea that science, right? That first there's science, and then when the science is there, when, when things are discovered and experimented and proven and written about, that engineering follows. But of course, in many fields, it's the other way around. People were doing amateur chemistry uh, uh, or, or they were doing architecture. And some of these buildings are still standing after 3,000 years, and most of them don't. But we learn from the ones that stay standing, of course. We haven't gotten that yet in software. We haven't been able to learn uh, from these systems. And then there's the whole expectations that are different, right? People assume that, yes, we should replace the software and we can replace the software and it only costs time and money. Um, but we want to do all of that while they're in production. That's something very novel, right? That hasn't really happened uh, at that level of complexity before. When we change cities, right? When we change bridges and buildings, etc. We we take down a building, for example. So we, we, we shut it down, right? We get everybody out. We take it down. We build a new one uh, on site. And maybe we change the streets. And we've done all these kind of things. Uh, take down the bridge, but have like, you know, or, or use half of it to, to have the cars in both direction, fix one, one site. Uh, those are things we're not willing to do in software right now. Right? The business needs to keep running and everything depends on it. And that that hasn't really happened um, at that scale in software where we would shut down you know, an entire bridge for a year. Uh, so I, I think that there's probably something in that direction where we need to start looking, uh, start thinking about um, how we're going to build systems that last and how we're going to keep them maintainable. Um, I think there's... It's also something in, in the way um, we track legacy and the cost of, of all software. We don't really know. You know some companies yeah. do, and some, some companies do a good job. But it's not a standard thing that an investor would look at the balance and say, well, I don't want to invest in this company because the ratio of, of uh, un unmaintainable software compared to productive maintainable software compared to the to, to the depth and the investments and all these sort of things, that, that doesn't happen at that level. I think there's something missing there as well that would uh, get us out of the Stone Age. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. We generally lump all this under technical debt, right? And we, we can explain yeah. like why technical debt is, is a bad thing or a term one of my customers uses is called business debt. That's when you run multiple systems that all do the same thing. So we, we, we can... Put a term, but you're right. It's hard to put a dollar figure on that one. It's hard yeah. to put uh, the cost of delay and, and, and what's the cost of delay worth. It doesn't show up on the balance sheet. Um, yeah. And so that's one of the challenges that I work with IT leaders is they believe that these things are true. But how do you create that convincing um, argument, if you will, to the, to the business folks who are typically the investors and in the, in the financiers of these systems? Now is the time that you have to start to, to, to look to do that one and not just keep piling on more and more features on an old system. And it's a really hard sort of thing to do because a lot of times there's a, these are a good amount of investment. And these systems have been around in many cases for, for decades. 
Um, You know, as you go into work with organizations that are in this sort of, you know, um, migration, if if you will, how how do you help the the IT leaders kind of frame this up um, for the the, the business leaders in a way that would get them sort of like understanding like, hey, we do need to to, to pay down this debt. Have you found any techniques um, that that have worked uh, particularly well? Or some that have not. Um, Could you repeat the question, maybe? Yeah, yeah. So if you go in, you get hired in by, I'm assuming, IT to help sort of frame out uh, how we could design and build systems in the new. But in my experience, a lot of time, the the business part of an organization has been using these legacy systems for for a long time. And they've been told there's technical debt, but they don't really want to pony up the money to invest to really get off of the legacy systems and to build all this new out so that my customers at least have a, a challenge in that they believe that the right way is in, you know, microservice, more domain driven design, but they have a hard time articulating it to somebody who's not a technical person about why this investment is important and, and why now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And in, in the short term, it's, it's trying to create awareness, uh, collecting evidence helps, right. And, and, Mm. evidence in 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 well you mentioned it right it's hard to put a dollar on it uh yes but we should uh, we should fr- from from the bottom up we should start doing that um we can start tracking or or technical depth in terms of um you know i i wanted to build this thing here this this feature or, or this story um it took me two days instead of the two hours that it should have cost me if this was uh looking better Track that somewhere, somehow, right? Post it's a, 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 a tool, I don't care. Um, but put that dollar sign on it at the lowest level, right? It's empiric now. It's not, it's not somebody who does sort of a, you know, a due diligence or, or an analysis of the system and says, well, it's, it's, there's this much technical debt. No, it's the day-to-day tracking of how much something costs. If you can combine, at, at the, that's something you cannot... Um, well, I mean, there's still some amount of estimation in there, right? Uh, yeah. But at that point, if you work on something for a couple of days, um, because you spend a, a, most of your time sort of reverse engineering what it does before you can actually make the change safely, uh, you can more or less accurately subtract the, the the research time from the actual implementation time and and put a, put a number to that. Um, and then you can... You know, if you've done that, you have, it's it's less of an accurate, it's more more an estimate then, but you can say, well, uh, it would cost this much to fix this problem, right? Uh, maybe, maybe with a confidence interval. Um, if we do that, we now have have two numbers, right? The, 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 the cost over time of our technical debt and the cost to, to fix it. And not to fix everything, but to fix the things that we touch the most. Of course, that's still not the full number because the the, the ideal number then takes into account um, uh, what parts are we expecting to change in the future, right? The fact that we yeah, we finished changing all of this, it's done now. Of course, that number doesn't really matter, but it can give us some some ideas, right? And and we could you know we're, we're n- there, there's not much there that does this at this you know. Uh, does this sort of company wide anywhere that I'm that I'm aware of? There's tools that calculate technical debt by doing static analysis, but that's that's not what I'm talking about. It's the human estimation of this is how much 
we overpaid on making this feature because of technology. Yeah. This is how it will, how much it will cost to fix it. If you can show these numbers now to to management, you're giving them something in a language they understand, right? Now it's a, it's you know, uh, how risky would it be, right? How how much do we think that things will break, etc. These these kind of things compared to how much it will cost, to, compared to how much we will save, compared to uh, the kind of things we cannot do now. That's something that bothers me. When in, in a meeting, um, when there is sort of a, a large technical debt, in a meeting, somebody will say, oh, what about this ID? Could we do this? Well, it will probably take three to six months. ID dismissed, right? And and you don't, nobody's sort of keeping track of how, all the things you're not doing because of it. It's just sort of general this is how things are here, right? We cannot do these things. There's this institutional belief, these limiting beliefs that we cannot do these things. And, you know, they're based on, on, on fact. Whereas in, in sort of a, let's call it maybe a mature, uh, well-running organization with low technical debt and, and good models, et cetera, somebody will say in a meeting, oh, I have this idea for a feature. Well, okay, let's, let's do a quick proof of concept. Uh, let's meet tomorrow uh, to, to, to look at it. It's just sort of a, code proof of concept right what it would what the changes in code would would, would be like um, you know with some tests and and something something to look at maybe some 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 scenarios some some uh, behavior driven development scenarios um, but you do that in in like a day or two days you can look at it you can say well based on what we know this will take another two weeks to implement okay let's let's do that and get it in the hands of you know three of our customers that we know are interested in this see what they think and Things are going to move a lot faster. And when you're in those environments, you don't think about the environments, you know, all the other ones. So you don't really see, you're not even aware of what an excellent environment you're in. And I think that, you know, creating that awareness, like in, in a meeting uh, in the, you know, the organization with the technical debt, if you can say, well, wait a minute, uh, let's remember this moment, right? We, we just uh, missed an opportunity because it would cost six months it could have costed three weeks, right? Or we could have had a, 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 an organization that can deal with sort of small experiments, safe to fail things, try something, get it in the hands of, of one customer even, uh, learn from it, you know, take gas. But in these, these organizations, everything needs to be a huge project. And then there's like a whole cost on top of it before development even begins, right? Estimating it and planning it and, and all of that stuff. Um, and it's the way things happen, right? There's, there's yeah. no, no insight in that. So awareness about all these things, I think, is, uh, um, well, it doesn't work everywhere. O often, I'm going to be honest, often we come in and it's already decided that they're going to do this big project and they already allocated the budget and the, the, there's already a deadline and it's uh, already announced, uh, yes. but they're already two months late. And uh, so, yeah, then you work with what you got, right? And you try to... Uh, make a little dent, have some impact uh, yeah. and, and work on the mindset as well. I remember uh, I, I sat on top of Bob Martin and he said, the first thing you know on a project is the due date. Um, and that's often <laughs> the way it where, you know, for good or for bad, you, you know, that when everybody starts uh, running around. So let me ask you in your journey, who have been some of your influences along the way? Who have been some of the people in the, in the books that have influenced your thinking um, to sort of where it is today? 
Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, you know, when I was coming from music, I was reading everything because I, I had no idea what I, what there even was to know. Um, and then, you know, well, Mark Fowler and 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 uh, the, the, these people, of course, but Eric Evans, you know, domain driven design. Um, that was sort of the book that I, I had this feeling in the in the beginning. I was mostly doing sort of web applications and and small product, and I couldn't really imagine how you know how these complex systems in these large organizations would work. How how you would even do that? Uh, I had this feeling that you know the 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 bits of modeling that I had been doing on the job with with, with teams, it didn't really feel like it felt it felt like there must be more than this, right? And Eric Evans' book is sort of the one that really showed me that oh wait there is there are people you know doing this and thinking about this and it gave me permission to you know say no let, let's not just jump into code let's let's start modeling let's find the people who know this stuff let's let's try variations right this idea of uh it, it, it broke the whole linear model of, of of software design for me right it's it's try something it's it's go talk to somebody make something small see it in the hands of of somebody who, who who can use it, use a language so that you know their language in the code, so they can even read the code. I mean, they might not be programmers; they might not be yeah. fully understanding of it. But if you if you have tests and and code in somewhat human language using their terminology, they can inspect it. They can say, "Well, here um, we we forgot to think about this edge case, or I don't know what happens in this case." Well, let's write a test where you describe to me in your language what you do and what you expect to happen. And um, I will make that test executable, right? That's that's BDD. Um, so it, it sort of opened, opened the world for me, that book. Um, and then, of course, I mentioned Rebecca Wurzbrock, um, you know, a one, another one of those, uh, you know, they say, don't meet your heroes. Uh, I, I, I was actually shy about meeting her the first time, uh, but... Uh, She's she's amazing. She has had such an influence on 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 everything. Um, and I'm now you know I, I I'm now lucky to be working with her. And uh, that last blog post that you read, uh, we wrote that together. Um, so that's been that's been fascinating. Um, I think yeah, those would probably be the most. Uh, I mentioned I mentioned William Kent's Data and Reality. Um, it's this. It's yeah. It's it's software and and philosophy about. Uh, modeling almost, but very sort of clear and deep thinking. Uh, I love that. Um, who else? Uh, David West, uh, object thinking, which is sort of, it, it starts from Plato's cave, right? So it's, it's wow. a philosophy of, 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 of software. It's the anthropology. He talks about the anthropologist as, you know, a, a software designer needs to go into a domain and, and, and understand it. Uh, you, you don't need to be a domain expert. It used to be like that, right? It just software used to be yeah. domain experts who programmed what they needed. Yeah. Um, I think we lost touch a bit there. They still do it. They do it in Excel, but it's not considered software development. Yeah. Uh, it, it is. I mean, it's it's a programming language, Excel. Uh, but so yeah, definitely that book. Um, yeah. Well. I, I, uh, well, um, when it comes to messaging, uh, there's of course enterprise integration patterns by uh, uh, Wolf and Hopi, um, uh, and um, also related is uh, Peter Hintjens. Uh, he was the um, he was one of the you know the the people behind ZeroMQ, and he wrote a book that starts as sort of 
technical book on zero MQ and then starts talking about messaging patterns and, and how systems communicate and um, how that even reflects to how um, organizations can work and how people collaborating on things can work. Uh, he was very much a believer in sort of a, um, an extreme open source uh, uh, worldview where um, he would just accept, he, he, said, he says, uh, um, if you want to uh, start an open source project, uh, put a readme on GitHub, describe a problem and say it's unsolvable. And then just wait for pull requests to come in and just accept them. And you will get edit wars. You will get you know, different opinions, etc. Et but edit war wars are an interesting, are work, work as a way of collaborating. It happens on Wikipedia and Wikipedia is better for it. Right, so you get people changing things, and and uh, I don't know if that would work as a you know at a company level uh, because companies are also control structures, of course. But um, it's it's a very interesting idea, and it, it sort of it's always in the back of my mind of how to do things. Um, you know, running simultaneous experiments uh, all the time. Um, uh, that stuff I was. I, I was doing with the team before knowing that there's a world of people who, who, who talk about that. But uh, uh, Dave Snowden, of course, is, is uh, one of my big influences there. Uh, so Kinevin Framework and you know, safe-to-fail experiments uh, and, and all these sort of ideas. It's interesting. You, you mentioned sort of the business. When er, Earlier in my career, I worked with a company that built an older system. And they basically hired – it's a financial system. They hired bankers and taught them COBOL. But they didn't need to understand the domain because that's what they did. Fast yeah. forward it to, to my generation. They hire coders who are good and proficient in these things, but who don't really necessarily know the, the, the domain. And, yeah. and it created that. That didn't exist a, a long time ago, but each of, the, each of the art of software development has evolved so much that a lot of time folks who are coming out with you know, degrees in software engineering, computer science, they have some of the technical jobs. But the domain is when they get dropped into a new domain, you're right. It's like a, um, ar you know, archaeologist. You, you got to go uncover things and dig things up and have conversations yeah. and talk to a lot of people about how the things work at the same time, not, not trying to design it too much on the fly or not trying to solution it um, yeah. sort of too much on the fly. Yeah. And, and we've probably turned uh, the whole, uh, you know, uh, computer science and programming into a very technical, uh, you know, it's called science and, you know, a, a sort of technical field, whereas it really is a, is a social field first. Uh, more and more people are, are sort of warming up to these ideas, right? There's uh, Conway's Law, uh, another one of my influences. Yeah. Um, he wrote a paper in, in 67 or 68 uh, on how committees invent. I recommend everybody to read it. It's, it's short and very readable. Um, and, and we're now, now this idea of, of this law, right? Conway's law where the, 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 the communication structures of the organization will be reflected of the design organization will be reflected in the design. And now people are sort of looking into that and trying to change their organization to, to, uh, have it, you know, mimic the structure that they want for the system. But now we're sort of still in, well, we're also in the stone age of that because people think that, oh, let's just change the organization structure and our design will follow. Well, yes, but it might take, take 10 years. Uh, so uh, I, I, I once um, worked with uh, 
he was a head of he was a head product owner. Um, he was not a technical guy, but he had a very good sense uh, of, of of how things uh, actually work. And he had this mantra in the organization. He was saying, "It took us five years to br- build this broken system. It will take us five years to fix it." And that's the awareness thing, right? He was saying that every time, every occasion, every meeting, he would mention that when people sort of. So, as a way to to manage the expectations that um, you know. We, we can't just decide today that we want a new design and, and, and do it. Uh, not that, uh, you know, once you're out of startup phase, you, you, you lost that opportunity probably. Um, but there are ways to do it. There is, uh, you know, this idea of gradualism, right? If you, if you can change something a little bit all the time over and over, uh, if you learn refactoring techniques, right? That's another influence, Michael Feathers. Yeah. Um, if you, if you consider programming, not as, Here's a blank page, and I, I I program something, but here's this this there's there's two models, right? There's the model of how the business works or how it should work. There's the model of how the system works. Um, well, there's three models. There's the one that we want to get at, where where we want to evolve things. Your job is not creating code. Your your job is finding a path through these through these models to the next position, accepting that you might not end up in your beautiful targets, architecture, target design, as long as you end up somewhere better, you, you can make progress and you can actually discover a better path while doing it. Um, and I think that philosophy is still very much missing. We're doing very much um, append-only development as opposed to true iteration and, and constant changing. Um, so Michael Feathers was sort of the you know working effectively with legacy code. That was at a time when I was new in software, and I started to see that wait a minute, there's this legacy everywhere, there's this technical debt everywhere. How am I ever going to you know maybe I'm in the wrong industry? Maybe I should I should have stuck with music. Um, but but then I figured, well, how would I approach this in music? Well, if something is if if you're good at something, you get better at it because you enjoy it. When you enjoy it, you know. You 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 want to do more of it, so I figured I I should do that with legacy with technical depth, figure out how to do refactoring, how to do how to write tests, um, uh, growing object oriented software guided by tests by um, uh, Freeman and uh, I I'm afraid I lost the other name, but it's a it's a well known book, you know one of those early books for me that sort of showed me that you can actually evolve into good design as opposed to having to do it up front. Um, and, and uh, you know, that that's when I decided that I want to be good at refactoring so that I can uh, enjoy it more so that I can be better at it and, and deal with systems in that way. Uh, I think that saved me, that book, Michael Feathers. Nice. You know, I, you know, one of the things I picked up early from sort of the test-driven was thinking at your software first, but how do people use it first versus yeah. how is it constructed? Because historically, I would think about how it's good, the attributes and methods and those sort of things. And test-driven taught me to think, well, sit down and write the method as, as if you were to invoke it and, and think about it from that perspective. And I found that it made me a better engineer, but better architect too, because it, 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 it flipped sort of the dependencies. Yeah. I was looking at how are people going to use this piece of software I'm creating, not how do I think about its structure? Um, yeah. and yeah, it's a lot of those. We, we lived, you know, I'm, we're still living, but there's a golden age of the, a lot of the books that you, you'd reference, you know, really in the last 20 years, there's been this kind of, you know, golden age of a lot of those things. Um, 
coming about. And that's the thing I love about our field is it's, it's, it continues to grow and, and evolve, oh, yes. right? It's, it's, it's yeah. and it's hard to keep up. That's it's the, the challenge, but it's hard yeah. to keep up. So let me ask you um, to, to get ready to, to, to close it out. Cause I know uh, you have other commitments as well. What are some of the topics that are top of mind for you these days? We, we, yesterday we talked a little bit on the topic, like heuristics and others, maybe some of the topics that you're kind of top of mind thinking about these days. Could you share some of those? Yeah. So, well, the, the, the work I'm doing with, uh, with Rebecca is, um, you know, mostly bound to context. We think that's an largely unexplored uh, thing. Uh, and and uh, and heuristics. So heuristics for design. Um, I'm also very interested in in decision making heuristics. Uh, how do you you know evaluate your own decision making? Uh, we always tend to feel like you know we make the right decisions because they feel nice. But that you know the decision feels nice, or or the insight. You know somebody tells you some new information. Uh, what is what's actually happening that we know now, thanks to you know Kahneman and and and, and psychology, um, is uh, um, that you know when we get that new information, our lazy brain tries to just put it in a bucket that we already have, right? So it looks like some information I already know, so let's fit it in there, and you get this feeling, oh, I get it. It's just like this other thing I know. Your brain rewards you for that for for being lazy. Uh, but at that point, as soon as you feel it, it's, it's very uh, counterintuitive. But when you get the feeling like, oh, I get it, it's just like you have to tell yourself, well, stop. This is suspicious. I probably don't get it. Let's look at how it's different from what I already know. Let's actively look for the differences. And that's when the real learning happens. Right? That's, so that's something I look for. Um, I'm very interested uh, and happened for a long time in, in loss aversion. We evaluate a, lo- a potential loss as much worse than a, than we uh, value a potential gain, right? So uh, we 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 make our decisions. It's it's very um, it's insidious. It's everywhere. Every every meeting, if when you start paying attention to it, when there's a risk of something being lost, it's hardly considered as an option, right? It's dismissed. It's not even talked about. It's like if we do that, we might you know lose this or that. Um, therefore, it's not even worth mentioning as, uh, as an option. If you then start looking for, well, what if we actually do lose this? Or what if we take risk? Or how can we limit the risk of what we lose or, or, or limit the damage? Uh, but still, you know, and uh, w- what kind of options does it open? That's, that's what I'm interested in, right? Uh, people will always, you know, a project was decided, um, we're going to do it, and then it turns out that it, it doesn't work. People will continue, you know, because we're going to lose the, the, the stuff we already done, uh, did. And it's not just monetary or anything, but um, your attachment to something, right? To the, the energy or the thinking you invest in it. The fact that there is a plan. Well, we have a plan now. We, we cannot just get... We get rid of that plan because we already have it. So we need to change the plan or improve it or spend more time collecting more information uh, as opposed to saying, well, maybe this isn't the plan we need. Uh, and that's that's something I'm... Uh, and, then, and then people evaluate experiments that way as well. Oh, the experiment failed, so it was, it was a waste. Well, no, we learned something. That's the gain, and that's much more, more valuable. So I would rather not make this big plan. And that's also the, the hard thing to convince my clients, right? You know, 
don't do the big plan. Uh, let's let's set up some mechanisms where we can do lots and lots of small experiments, um, small enough and and cheap enough and reversible enough. Uh, but they also need to have some real world impact. There must be some real world risk. Otherwise, you just do sort of little nibbles at the at the edges, right? So let's try something that you know it might be the wrong thing, but it will cost us two weeks instead of your you know six months of planning and and three months of implementation. Uh, you know that that sort of thing. Uh, and I think that's how we will need to start attacking. Um, you know. Uh, technical debt, uh, uh, you know, evolving in a fast-moving landscape, all these sort of things. Uh, that that's sort of where my my head is at in terms of, uh, you know, heuristics for decision making and uh, and working with uh, you know these organizations that uh, are big and complex and slow and interesting. And uh, yeah, no, it's 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 a really big unexplored space, and I think I'm, I'm glad you're sort of pushing. The, the boundary on there. So la- last question is a really fun one. Your music background, what music are you listening to uh, these days? So uh, a lot of different things. That's uh, I guess the, the, what you get from going to music school. Um, but um, yeah, I think, well, I, I, I sort of got lazy. I'm not really discovering new things. I'm just sort of rediscovering 70 stuff uh, a lot lately in terms of pop music. Uh, I'm, for many years, I've been a, a huge fan of uh, um, string quartets of all ages. That, that's to me, that's like the finest art form in music. It's it's usually the four best musicians that only want to work with the best. So it's not like a, you know just some people playing some music, but yeah. the, the the good quartets like the Brodsky quartet. Uh, they often focus on on. A, you know, some specific music. Brodsky Quartet focuses on Shostakovich. He, he's written 15 string quartets. They're considered the best in doing just that. Right? They're good. They're good at other music as well, of course, and they do it. But that's sort of their, you know, life focus, which I think it's. I'm, I'm jealous of that. You know, single-minded focus with the same four people doing doing this same 15 pieces for I don't know how long, 30 30 years now or 40 years. That's uh, I think that's mind blowing, uh, and they they are so attuned to each other. So that's something I can really enjoy uh, going to 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 live string quartets. That's awesome. So we'll have to drop a link. Eleanor worked to get links to some of this information, including that sure. dropped in. Okay. So, so so Matthias, man, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Uh, this is fun. Awesome. All right, take care. You too. See you. <laughs>